available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this week's edition of Outlook, being recorded on Wednesday the 24th of January. And coming up, we will be completing the story of Edith Crell with Keith. Uh, we'll be finding something out about Big Ben. And I'm not sure whether that's going to be the tower, which it isn't really, or the bell itself, which it is. Uh, there's a story from Ali, uh, which is called Life Begins at 60. And there's the completion of the story of Dame Judy Dench and her love of animals. And of course, Alan is back with her the early days. And of course, we've got also your sport, your post flag, uh, mm-hmm. and we've got something else, I'm sure. Oh, we've had the report. We have a report from Hugh as well, I hope. Uh, but before that, we're going to have the local week's news, as always. And here is Peter and Elaine. Outlook News. 2023 was a year in which we saw the rise of AI, a continued cost of living crisis, and the King's coronation. We saw fewer HR changes, with many of the more significant pieces of legislation being moved to 2024. These will mean changes to the work rules for everyone across the UK, including more take-home pay, the potential for more time off work and a better chance of getting flexible working hours. The big work rule changes for employees and employers in 2024 are national insurance cuts. In the autumn statement, the Chancellor announced a cut to employee national insurance from 12% to 10%. This came into effect from the 6th of January. The national living minimum wage. Sticking with payroll, there were larger than usual rises to the national minimum and living wages announced in the autumn statement, as advised by the Low Pay Commission. From April 2024, the national living wage will increase by £1.2p to £11.44, and the national minimum wage for 18 to 20 year olds will increase by £1.11p to £8.60 and the apprentice rate for 16 to 17 year olds will increase by £1.12p to £6.40. The Carers Leave Act 2023. A new right is being introduced permitting employees to request one week of unpaid leave a year to care for a dependent with a long-term care need. Employment Relations Act 2023. This extends the rights of employees to request flexible working from the provisions already in place. Employees will have a day one right to make a request and will be able to make two requests a year. Businesses will have the right to decline the request for a valid business reason but will have less time to give a response, two months instead of three. Post-Brexit employment law changes. Holiday pay calculations and rollovers are changing from April this year. Employment Act 2024. From May 2024, it is expected that this Act will come into force affecting hospitality businesses, requiring that 100% of tips are paid to staff before the end of the month 
in which the tips were made. It would be also necessary for employers to have a written tip distribution policy. A statutory code of practice is currently being written. And other changes. In 2024, a larger responsibility will be placed on employers to protect staff from sexual harassment while working. For instance, from customers. That there will be extra protection from redundancy for employees on maternity or adoption leave and that employees with unpredictable working hours like zero-hour contracts will gain a new right to request more certainty. 2024 is due to mark the start of the City Centre South scheme, the most talked about redevelopment project in the city for years. As we have previously reported, the huge scheme is set to transform Coventry's skyline with new homes, commercial space and more public open spaces. Phase 1 will include 991 homes, 200 of which will be affordable homes and 8,000 square metres of commercial space, which will feature a mix of bars, restaurants and shops, and small businesses within 17,000 square metres of open green space. Phase 2 will include further commercial properties and over 500 homes, with some buildings 19 storeys high. Andy Fancy, Managing Director of the Hill Group, one of the development partners, says the scheme will bring back life and residents to the city centre by renovating areas that have been neglected. He said it will create much needed new homes for professionals and families. The Hill Group and Shearer Property Group are currently in the process of developing a retail strategy with Coventry City Council to attack to attract new retailers. However, they say Coventry Market will remain a central point in the city centre opposite the new development to ensure a steady footfall for new businesses coming into the scheme. Following Mr Fancy's answers to key questions about the scheme, residents shared their views and there was a mixed reaction. Some bemoaned the negativity over the plans, but others branded it a massive mistake. Matthew Richardson said, I can't understand why people are moaning so much. OK, it's not perfect, but it's a thousand times better than what's there now. And if it works, then it could be a catalyst for further growth. It's a city. Let's make it one where people want to live, work and play. Jeswood said, great to see this. No scheme is ever going to be perfect. But city centres are changing purpose, and this comes at the right time. However, Nikki Coley said, Personally, I don't think this is the right kind of development. It looks depressing and enclosed, not somewhere that I'd want to live. Anita Jones was sceptical about the scheme's chances of attracting retailers, saying, More retail units to stand empty. And Trevor Bevan was also unconvinced, commenting, This is a massive mistake. Coventry will regret it in years to come. But Coconuts said, It's not being built for those still living with skewed memories of the 1950s and 60s good old days. It's being built for younger, future city residents. 
most of those who will be interested are just entering college or university, or indeed just starting senior school. Most of the naysayers won't survive to see the completed project, so their lack of imagination is not going to influence anything. Coventry Stadium has been saved. A bid to build more than 100 homes there, along with a sports pitch and an open space, have been thrown out after an appeal was rejected. Helen Hockenhull, the planning inspector overseeing the case, said in a report issued last Friday, Coventry Stadium was not just a local facility, but was a stadium hosting local, regional, national and international events. I therefore conclude that the benefits of the alternative provision do not outweigh the loss of Coventry Stadium. She said the need to keep the stadium, giving its national importance to speedway and stock car racing, outweighed the proposed benefits of the redevelopment scheme. Her report accepted there would be jobs and economic benefits to building homes there. It also said there were concerns over antisocial behaviour at the site. She said, supporters of the redevelopment of the site for housing have raised the issue of antisocial behaviour, noise, illegal parking and blocking of footpaths when the stadium was in operation. But she added, any nuisance issues are matters for the council and the stadium operator. The application, which was for 124 homes, open space and a 3G sports pitch, was originally refused by Rugby Borough Council's planning committee in November 2022. The appeal was heard by the planning inspector at public hearings in autumn 2023. Councillor Ian Picker, Rugby Borough Council portfolio holder for growth and investment said, I am very pleased that the inspector agreed with the members of the planning committee that the benefit of the proposed housing scheme did not outweigh the loss of a historic venue for speedway and stock car racing. Sir Keir Starmer has hailed Coventry's innovation and ability to look around the corner while on a visit to a cutting-edge research group in the city. But the Labour leader said he is frustrated the city is being held back and vowed to push more power to the wider West Midlands region under a Labour government. Sakia and the party's regional mayors and candidates were visiting the Warwick Manufacturing Group at the University of Warwick last week. Speaking to the local democracy reporting service, he said the group is brilliant and described Coventry as an amazing historic city, a huge contributor to the region and the country. Asked what stands out to him about Coventry, he said there's a combination of two emotions, feeling inspired and uplifted, but also frustrated. When you look at the manufacturing, the innovation, the commitment, the ability to look around the corner that you see here in Coventry and across the region, that is very uplifting, he said. I love it. I think it's really precious, and that's got a long history in Coventry. The other emotion is one of frustration, because Coventry is being held back. We've got too much poverty. We haven't, had the best, we haven't made the best of the opportunities that we've got, and there isn't the necessary level of collaboration. So I'm inspired and uplifted by what many people across Coventry are actually doing that I can come and see for myself. 
On his plans for devolution in the area if Labour wins a general election likely to be held this year, Sakir said the party is keen to push power away from Westminster. We want to push more resource, more power, more decision-making to the West Midlands, he said. Working together on planning issues and infrastructure issues to make sure they work, he added. But it's about pushing power away from Westminster and Whitehall and putting it closer to those on the ground, in and around the mayoral model. Mr Starmer also said there will be a difference in the way of working if there's a Labour government and the party wins the West Midlands mayoralty. Mayoralty. A role currently held by the Conservatives' Andy Street. What you would get across the area is the collaboration between the mayoral work that needs to be done and the national work there to support it. The morality, oh, the morality will be up for grabs in May and Mr Street will be going for a third term facing Labour candidate Richard Parker. Receiving post on a Saturday could become a thing of the past in radical new plans proposed by Ofcom. The industry regulator will discuss the plans among a series of other proposals next week. Another option is to copy services in countries such as Germany, which deliver mail on alternate days. It comes after Royal Mail was referred to Ofcom last year when MPs accused the firm of failing to deliver letters six days a week. Last year, a group of MPs from the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee said the firm had been prioritising parcel deliveries over letters and described it as systematically failing to deliver on its obligations to deliver letters six days a week. This week, Martin Seddenberg, Chief Executive of the International Distribution Services, the owner of the Royal Mail, praised extraordinary efforts by staff over Christmas, but also reiterated his call for urgent action regarding its obligation to deliver letters six days a week. Simon Thompson, Chief Executive of Royal Mail, added, We have always been clear we need change to survive. We have started turning the business around, and we'll do whatever he takes. We would prefer to reach agreement with the Communication Workers' Union, but in any case, we are moving ahead with changes to transform our business. It was a day many thought was coming, but that did not make the news any easier to take. Thursday, January 18, 2024, will remain etched in the memories of many, as it was the day when Uneaton Borough Football Club announced it was pulling out of the Southern League and was staring down the brink of liquidation. So many times the fat lady has warmed up to start singing at the borough, only to be stopped from bursting into song. Sadly, this time she is in fine voice. Many have said that the writing has been on the wall for some time, but to see in black and white the club confirm its almost certain demise was a stark moment, not just for the town, but for football in general. In debt, homeless, and with practically no first-team players left, it's hard to see how even the borough could wriggle out of this one. It said it was considering liquidation. Short of a miracle, that is going to happen. The Midlands will therefore lose one of its most well-known non-league clubs, 
The club has provided some glorious footballing moments, including that FA Cup run in 2006 that led to 5,000 supporters making their way up to Middlesbrough. We're a proud town. Even if the borough is not your first club, it's at least a second team for many. Or it's the first score you look for on a Saturday afternoon at 5pm. How did the borough get on was a conversation had at many a pub across the town. But that is soon to be no more. However, it's the die-hard borough fans who are the real victims in this. The borough faithful who have stuck with the club through thick and thin, through every high and every low. Your heart goes out to them. No one can question their commitment, their effort, their doggy determination to follow their club. The Department for Work and Pensions has confirmed how much money you are allowed to have before your benefits are stopped, as it prepares to start checking people's bank accounts. The DWP has been given new powers to check claimants' accounts, to check for things such as how much money they have, where they are spending it, and whether they are spending too much time abroad. Culture Minister Sir John Whittingdale said, It is specifically about means-related benefit claimants to ensure they are eligible for the benefits they are currently claiming. In doing that, it will save the taxpayer a considerable amount of money from the identification and avoidance of fraud. We do believe that those who are in receipt of benefits funded by the taxpayer do have an obligation to meet the terms of those, and this is one way of ensuring that they do so. The DWP says there is a capital limit of £16,000 if you are claiming any of these means-tested benefits. Universal credit, income-based job seekers allowance, income-related employment and support allowance, income support and housing benefit if you are under state pension age. This limit will stay unchanged when the new benefit rates come into effect in April. Despite benefit payments increasing by 6.7%, the capital limits will remain the same, along with the benefit cap that limits how much a person can receive. Residents fear that Coventry is becoming a ghost town after the latest closure of Sports Direct in the city. Sports Direct at Central Six Retail Park closed down last Sunday, replaced with Iceland Food Warehouse. This comes after many high street favourites struggled to survive in an ever-changing retail climate, from Topshop in 2020, Wilco in 2023, and huge names like Boots, Argos and Clintons announcing plans to close for good this year. However, this isn't the first time that Coventry has been associated with the ghost town term. When Wilco announced plans to close in October, Councillor Gary Ridley shared his concerns that more shops are needed to attract people in and there may be a drop in footfall that would impact other nearby stores. Many locals previously expressed their concern about the future of the city's high street, with some saying it's become depressing and has been a ghost town for a long time. Energy firms have been urged to improve unsatisfactory customer service as several major providers fell to the bottom of an annual league table. While British Gas came bottom 
in Witch's annual energy firm survey, the watchdog found there was little to separate the remaining firms with the lowest customer scores. Boost, Scottish Power, Ovo Energy, Shell Energy, EDF Energy and E.ON Next. At the other end of the scale, Octopus Energy, Ecotricity and E-Gas and Electricity achieved the highest customer scores. The watchdog surveyed more than 9,000 energy customers in October for its annual customer service satisfaction and also assessed 18 energy firms behind the scenes practices and policies to compile an overall score. Octopus Energy received an overall score of 73% and was the only firm to achieve a five-star rating for overall customer service. Ecotricity and E, gas and electricity, scored 72% and 71% respectively and also received four stars for their overall customer service and quality of communications about energy costs. The findings come as households suffer a price cap of £1,928 a year for the typical household, with prices predicted to remain above the pre-2021 levels until the end of the decade. While fixed deals have been slowly returning to the market, which said it had seen few that were significantly cheaper than the price cap, meaning the quality of a firm's customer service was the major factor in differentiating providers. Which Director of Policy and Advocacy, Rocky O'Concha, said, With energy prices still punishingly high and limited chances for customers to save money by switching suppliers, good customer service is more important than ever. While Octopus Energy, Ecotricity and E were all named which recommended providers and scored highly for their customer service, others fell short of customers' expectations. Suppliers must remember that customers who receive poor service can and will vote with their feet and take their business elsewhere. Over the past 12 months, we have seen a rise in switching as competition slowly returns to the market. Coombe Abbey has spoken out over claims of ghosts and spooky happenings at the centuries-old estate. People have been sharing terrifying tales after an 11-year-old boy snapped a picture that shows a spooky face peering out of a window of the abbey. Oliver Tatham took the picture while visiting the Luminate Trail at Coombe Abbey with his family before Christmas. He saw a figure who appeared to be dressed in an old-fashioned maid's outfit staring out of a window. He took a picture before the figure mysteriously disappeared. Now Coombe Abbey has added to the mystery by sharing their own spooky picture. James Webster, head of entertainment at the venue, was pictured with two apparitions, although he said he has never seen anything personally. And although James hasn't seen anything himself, he added that plenty of staff members have reported supernatural experiences in his time there. He said, People have been telling tales of ghosts at Coombe Abbey ever since it reopened as a hotel in the 1990s. While I've never seen anything in my 14 years here, historic abbeys are renowned for being haunted, and I've even been pictured with what looks like two apparitions. 
but it all depends on what you believe. Coombe Abbey has a long history and was famously linked to the gunpowder plot as Robert Catesby and other anti-establishment conspirators planned to kidnap Princess Elizabeth who was staying at Coombe under the supervision of a king's close friend. In the 12th century, it was the largest and most influential monastery in Warwickshire, but after the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII, ownership was passed around. John Harrington bought the property in 1581, and it was acquired by the Craven family in 1622. It stayed with them for 300 years, during which time the abbey was extensively developed, with a number of buildings added. The last Lord Craven died in 1921, and the Countess decided to sell up. Coventry City Council took ownership of the Abbey in 1964, the parks opened to the public in 1966, and the hotel opened in 1995. A couple of road painters maybe should have taken their time while spelling the word slow on the tarmac. Local observer Kim Cooper-Grindley was amused to see the warning spelled backwards on a street, not in Coventry, but in Penge, South London. Why would you need to go slow looking in your rearview mirror after you've already passed it, she asked. It happened on Monday, January the 15th at approximately 11.30am, but they have not returned. Kim joked, our concern is that there will be hordes of people visiting to see the famous walls. An online neighbourhood Facebook group was scratching their heads as they discussed whether it was a mistake or not. <clears throat> Comments suggested whether it was for testing your eyesight or testing if you can read back to front. It follows an incident in September 22 when Brighton Road marking painters went straight to the bottom of the class after spelling the word school wrong. Contractors had daubed school, S-H-C-O-O-L, outside Brighton's Portslade Aldridge Community Academy. Bromley Council have been contacted for comment regarding the Penge spelling, but they have been slow to comment. Maybe their English isn't that good. <laughs> However, I have a little to stop press before we finish off the news. This is about a play called City of Burning Spires at the Criterion Theatre on the 3rd and the 5th of February. It's about a husband and wife in the Coventry Blitz and it's written and performed by hand, by hand of the grandson of the lead characters. That's the Criterion Theatre on the 3rd and 5th of February. If you want to uh, book tickets, you can do that online by going to criteriontheatre.co.uk slash tickets. And the performance will start at 7.30 with doors opening at 7 o'clock. And uh, that completes the roundup of this week's local news with uh, Peter and Elaine. Now, uh, before I forget, times of opening up and downing time of the sun. Eight o'clock now. It's eight o'clock. It comes uh, to your window if it's sunny, if you're lucky. And it goes away at 4.35 in the afternoon. Don't think we've got any announcements this week, but uh, what I have got, I've got Hugh next to me to tell you what's going on here at the Resource Centre. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think probably the sun gets blown away at about four <laughs> o'clock. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, right, first off, I'm going to um, uh, start off with a little sad news. Um, uh, Joan Kirk, uh, who's a long-standing member of the, uh, of the Resource Centre, she uh, passed away on Monday. Uh, Joan was... Um, Gosh, for a long time she was at the uh, Monday Club. Very, uh, very enjoyed really going to that group a great deal. And she was also one of the founding people uh, of the of the Bowls group as well. Um, so she died at a nursing home in, in Kenilworth on Monday. Uh, she'd been suffering with dementia for um, quite some time. Uh, when I know funeral details, I will let you know as well. Um, I will certainly be going to that funeral. Uh, now, uh, I pre-warned you last week about uh, new computers. Well, uh, they have arrived. We have lovely uh, new large screens. I mean, they're, they're large, but they're not super, super large, uh, but they go right to the edge as well. So they will give people who need, like, uh, documents up, uh, you know, uh, in, in large format, you know, a, a bit of a better chance. We've got some lovely, they'll be, they're all Windows 11, these computers now. Oh, what's that? I don't uh, know the difference between that. Right, well, well, it's, it's old-fashioned 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that, well, old, old fashioned ish. Yeah. Um, 11 is the latest operating system for, for, for Windows. Um, it's, it's nice and easy to use. Yeah. It'll be very swift for people. Uh, now, the, what this means is that so Carl and I will be setting up those uh, computers over the course of the next week or so. Um, and then what we'll be do, having to do is clear down the old computers. Now, we're aware that a lot of people have quite a lot of documents stored on the centre computers. Which you shouldn't really have, but anyway, people do. Um, and uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to save all those documents, every document that we can find on, on, on the, on the uh, computer room um, uh, PCs. We will save them and put them onto either a or many USB sticks. So if we can identify whose, you know, whose documents they are, we will put them onto a special USB stick. And you will have your own USB stick um, in order to store your documents. And I think it might be an idea if we keep them here. We'll probably have a little key safe um, where people can get their USB stick and then load up the, um, load up the documents they want to use. So, uh, so it's going to take it's going to take a week or two uh, to get all this done, but uh, they, they 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 will come soon. You really won't notice much of a difference, uh, but there'll be there'll be a few. Uh, but I'm sure you'll get used to them in no time at all. Um, Excellent news that we have received uh, just ye, uh, well Monday late on Monday uh, a. a uh, grant that we applied for from an organisation called the Will Trust um, has stumped up uh, for uh, a new job here. Uh, so uh, the new job is a community fundraising officer that I'm thinking about calling it community fundraising champion and that job is going to go to Claire who's currently doing the transport. Uh, so uh, in the next uh, three weeks or so I think she'll be moving moving upstairs and uh, she'll be working uh, closely uh, with and for Joe. We now have a fundraising department right, which great. is great. Yes. Um, so, You'll so be able to retire soon. <laughs> 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 oh, you are, you are funny. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, so well done, Claire. Um, we're really thrilled about this uh, new opportunity. Claire's uh, role will be to 
uh, go out into the community and find people, A, to raise funds for us, and uh, she'll be looking after events and things as well, and uh, basically doing all the all the social media support for them and all sorts of, you know, it's quite, it's quite a lot to do in that job. So she'll be working four days a week, um, hopefully from about the middle of February, um, so, which is excellent news. Uh, which means, of course, that we'll be having a new transport coordinator. And I'm very pleased to say that Carl Stafford is going to be our new transport coordinator. Uh, so he will be uh, working more hours, more regularly, uh, and uh, we'll be looking all after all the buses as well. So um, I'm very pleased, you know, gradually, bit by bit, um, we are... Uh, expanding and getting the stuff that we need in in the right sort of posts. Dare I ask if this is a grant? Is it an ongoing forever grant? No, it's not. No, it's just for one year. But right. this is what we did. Uh, this uh, this organisation helped us uh, when uh, we started Joe's job. Um, so they funded her her post for a year. Mm-hmm. At which point, you know, we were hope, you know we were hoping that um, you know that the money that Joe was bringing in would be would you know, more than pay her salary. You know, would bring in a lot of inf- a lot of revenues for the charity. And so it is as it through. Before it and uh, you know, and it's been it's been tremendous successful so the the uh, this charity the will trust they uh, they uh, liked our arguments and um, for for this new post and 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 have stumped up the fairly significant watch of dosh that good. we needed so that was uh, that's very nice of them thank you to them and uh, yes good luck to to Claire and Lydie Carl um, in the future uh, now we've got talking of um, staff well sort of staffish uh, we've got a young work experience uh, lass who's going to be starting on the 5th of February just doing a week here um, her name is Verity Verity Gillam Green actually she is the uh, daughter of um, the artistic director at the uh, Criterion Theatre so we, oh. we know her quite well Wheels um, within wheels Wheels say. within wheels um, and you know we because we have a few work experience people come throughout the year uh, these days, uh, but uh, Verity uh, we know to be a highly bright and engaging young person, and um, I've got a good programme of things for her to do, so do welcome her when she comes on the 5th of February. Um, she'll be there to help and support in quite a lot of the groups, uh, so uh, you'll get to know her well. She's, she's lovely, so you'll, you'll, you'll be fine. And then finally, talking of the theatre, uh, of course we have the theatre trip, which I keep on mentioning now, uh, which is going to take place on Wednesday the 20th, 20th of March, we're going to see Dirty Great Love Story, which is a sort of uh, romantic-ish um, but funny uh, play. Uh, that is, uh, uh, so we'll start off with at five o'clock with a touch tour down at the theatre, come back up here for fish and chips, and then uh, back down to the theatre in the evening. So. Um, uh, if you're interested in that, we've already had quite a number of people sign up, then please do um, let Heather uh, or Carol know, and you can do that by calling 024 or by uh, just having a word with them if you happen to be in reception. And I think uh, that, dear friends, is it for this week. Thank you, Hugh. It was yeah. swift and brief, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, yes, it was good news. Good news week, though, wasn't good it? Good news week, yes. yes, Absolutely. yes, yes. Excellent. See you next week. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Despite the weather changing from minus 10 to minus 5 to plus 10 in just a couple of days, and from calm and sunny to wet and windy, sport still carries on. Here's Sarah. Outlook Sport. Good morrow, sweet listener. Well, I hope I've got at least one listener out there. Anyway. 
Actually, I'm going to start off with some rather sad news that you probably heard in the local press. On Thursday the 18th of January, the Board of Nuneaton Borough announced that they were withdrawing from the Southern Premier Central. Basically, it all stems back to not having a home ground that they can play at. And apparently, according to the press release, the lawyers have confirmed that the owners of their current ground won't sell or lease to quote-unquote any entity. Hmm. I do hope we're not going to see the borough ground turned into a housing estate. But that is only my view. Anyway, also in that division, neither Leamington nor Stratford had a match at the weekend because I think they were due to play away and both of the grounds were frozen. Rugby Borough women didn't have a match either, but I can't see from their Facebook page. I don't think that the match was postponed. I just don't think they had a match scheduled. So, oh, but actually some of our lower league clubs did really well. And winners included my lovely little Coventry United and Racing Club Warwick. And Racing Club Warwick, I have to say, are doing rather well. They're top of their league. So hopefully they will follow Coventry Sphinx and Rugby Town up one league next year. Meanwhile... The mighty Sky Blues travelled to Sheffield Wednesday to play the league match. This time, Coventry played Wednesday on a Saturday. Unlike the end of the week when Coventry will play Wednesday on a Friday. Confused? Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> you won't be alone. Now, Ben Sheep put City two goals ahead and the match was going really well. The commentators were confident about the way we were playing. The crowd were, in fact, Sheffield Wednesday's crowd were really on their backs. But then, halfway through the second half, they scored and the atmosphere really changed. But after about Ten minutes, things began to settle down, and that was how the match finished. Coventry two, Sheffield Wednesday one, or the other way round actually, because they were away. However, unfortunately, the match was marred by some dreadful racist abuse by one of the Sheffield, by well, by some people in the Sheffield Wednesday crowd towards our Jamaican international, Casey Palmer, who had had a fantastic match. Anyway, apparently the whole issue has been referred to FIFA. But I don't really understand this because apparently the FIFA regs sort of say if a team is found guilty of harbouring somebody who commits racial abuse. 
they will forfeit the match. But Sheffield Wednesday lost, so perhaps they could forfeit Friday's match. Yay! So don't forget, Friday, quarter to 8pm, the FA Cup fourth round against Wednesday. Meanwhile, the rugby lads of Coventry travelled to London Scottish, well, to Richmond actually, to play London Scottish. And again, their match was subject to a pitch inspection for frozen pitch, but they were allowed to go ahead and play. Now, to put this in context, London Scottish are bottom of the division. But there was a bit of a sort of interruption to the football shortly before the end of the rugby because London Scottish had gone ahead and it was looking as if they were going to win. But fortunately, our lads came back and won by 40 points to 38, thus winning all the points, including the bonus try. And at the moment... Don't say it too loud. But Coventry are top of their league. But they have played two more than most of their rivals. But hey-ho, we can only be where we are, can't we? Now, last week I laughed about Coventry having a water polo group and probably playing outdoors. In fact... I could expand that and say, sort of, how about the canal basin? Maybe not. Anyway, Annalise Perkins is in, from Coventry, she is in the World Championship GB team. And she's only 16. Anyway, well done, Annalise but I'm sure you don't practice in that canal basin. Now, hockey, meanwhile. the Both of our teams have been playing in a competition called, what it says on the tin, the Olympic Qualifier. And both have, I am delighted to say, qualified for Paris 2024. The ladies, by finishing third and the men by being the runners-up to Germany. But well done our teams, because last time the Olympics were held in 2021, certainly the women finished third. So, mm, come on girls, come on ladies, come on women. Tennis. The Australian Open continues. And first there were seven Brits going into round one. Then there were four because we lost three, including Sir Andy, in round one. But going into round two included Ms Radhikanu, who had won her first match. But then she lost along with two of the other four, which left only one brave Brit, our Cameron, Cameron Norrie. And amazingly, in the third round, he beat Casper Rude, 
the three times runner-up at some of the majors. And so he went into the fourth round, where he did lose to the number six seed. But it was a very tight game. It went all the way to the fifth game and fifth set, and that was only lost on a tie-break. And it was the first time he got beyond the third round. So, well done, Cameron. And that, I'm afraid, is all your sport for this week. Actually, why am I saying is afraid? Because half of you are jumping up and down, cheering and saying, great, we can get on with postbank. <laughs> Only joking. Anyway, bye, folks. Speak to you next week. Yes, very worrying, isn't it? Uh, which uh, we also picked, of course, you will notice in the news earlier. But I'm sure Sarah will keep us informed of any developments. Now it's time for your part of the programme with messages you sent in to Dave. Here he is with this week's postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello and a big welcome to your postbag. As Nigel asked, tell us about your New Year resolutions. Do you believe in making them? Have you had any success? Mine is to be more like Sheila in being organised and more like Graham who gets an idea, a place to go and goes for it. He's being compared with Michael Portillo who goes all over the place on the train reporting on TV. This is a part of a message that Michael Portillo recorded for you one Christmas. This is Michael Portillo and I'm speaking to you having just uh, made a speech at the Arts Centre in Warwick. It's been a thoroughly enjoyable evening with more than 500 people here and at the moment I'm busy signing books. Anyway, this is to wish you all very well and maybe when the good weather comes uh, your minds will turn to rail travel. And if you do go on your travels, by rail or any other way, please tell your fellow listeners. It could inspire them to do the same. Give us a call on 02476 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. You could send us a letter either written by you or someone on your behalf. You could email us on the official postbag at talkingnewspaper.org dot uk or email me on davidmonks at hotmail dot com which is very direct or you can ring me on o two four seven six five nine eight four eight four and you can have a chat like Doreen Hilton does and I'll ask her I'll record a message if you want me to and the recording is very clear that way Here's Doreen with a message for the Monday Club. Okay. Um, hello, everybody all. Um, this is Doreen here speaking to you again, Doreen Hilton. Um, I would like to say um, I was at the Monday Club this time last year in January, and I heard um, Margaret has gone into home care, but I hope she's okay, and I hope she's listening to me, because we are thinking about that. Also, uh, Janet, she put a request to say that uh, thank you. I'm thinking about you all. Well, everybody, I hope you're okay in the Monday Club. Um, 
you know, and enjoying yourselves with different things with our Dave. Our Dave tries to do his best, and I'm sure you do too. And also your volunteers, uh, um, Jennifer. I mean, Jennifer does a nice thing for you all. But anyway, everybody, I'd say take care. This is Doreen. I do think about everybody in the Monday Club, although I, I don't uh, come back. But you never know, one day you may see Doreen back. Okay, bye all. Thank you, Doreen. It was nice talking to you, as always. Going back to Christmas, Julia, who goes to the Gateway Club at Christ the King Church on the same night as I go to the Solo Club there, has this report on Christ the King's superb Christmas giveaway. Christmas is a time for giving and taking. They give and I take. Well, it takes two to get a bargain. At Christ the King, they were talking about unwanted gifts. What a strange idea. They said if you had a gift you didn't want, you could donate it to a good cause. I'm a good cause, but all I wanted was the uh, all the gifts. Good old Wendy the Warden had a smelly candle that she didn't want. She donated cream too. I didn't want a smelly old candle or the hand cream. There wasn't anything else worth having either. Any gold, frankincense or myrrh? Nope. So I just had a cup of tea and chatted to some people and a donkey and a couple of oxen who rocked up. It was cold and the shepherds didn't show. My friend Jen said if it snows next week she will dig a hole and hibernate for the winter. I was hoping that my friend John would hide in the hole, but when I came round tonight to write this report and for my lesson, there he was, bold as brass and twice as ugly. Maybe next year, perhaps. Perhaps. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. How's the weather treating you? Are you keeping warm? If you are above a certain age... Do you feel the cold more than when you were younger? I do. Do you have any tips for keeping warm? Let us know. Are you staying in more or going out with lots of layers of clothing like I do? Graham talks about an indoor sport, but should the word sport apply to darts? Well, Nigel referred to the 16-year-old lad who uh, won the darts uh, contest and posed the question as whether the darts can be classed as a sport. Well, as far as I'm concerned, no. Darts is just an excuse for blokes to go down the pub along with her uh, pool and various other pub games. I know that in this case the lad is only 16, he's practicing for when he gets older. Well, notice there's been an attempt to improve the image of beer-bellied darts players on TV. The last time I saw it, quite some time ago, the players had made an attempt to slim down and make the game more exciting. Players had stage names. One was called The Count and walked into the darts hall to great applause wearing a Dracula-style cape. But do you regard it as a sport or a game? Edwina, she had a little break before Christmas, and after being given a two-night break in a hotel, 
wherever she chose, she went to a place of her roots, Oxfordshire. This week is the final part, and she talks about visiting Wantage. We then arrived straight into Wantage. And in the Wantage Market Square is a huge Alfred the Great statue. I used to see that when I was little, but I was amazed when I saw it now as an adult. It is four um, tall, so it was much bigger than I had imagined. It was noted with brush wording now to say that um, Alfred the Great had been honoured by the Prince of Wales. So I said to Sylvia, who was the Prince of Wales at that time, and it was Edward VII, and the event happened in 1877. So that was lovely to see it all in brushwork. We were very lucky because it was actually a Sunday that we were visiting Wantage. So there was the Christmas market. It was amazing because it is a big marketplace and it was absolutely full of beautiful market stores. There was one man that was very tall indeed. He was a man that was standing on stilts. And Sylvia took a photograph of me standing in front of him. I could only just reach his feet, stretching my long arms up. So he was a long way up. I said to him, it must be mighty cold up there. Anyway, I did buy a couple of things and then we wandered round the shops that were round the outer part of the market. They didn't used to be there years ago. Everything has changed. We then decided to go into a cafe, but the two cafes were absolutely packed full because of it being the Christmas market. So we went further afield and found a pub. And the pub was called the Great Alfred the Great um, Head. That was what it was called. And we went in and it was a carvery meal. So that was very nice. When we had finished our meal, we had to decide that it was now time to go home. So we travelled back to Coventry and I arrived home at about 5pm. After having such a wonderful holiday of memories and change. Thank you, Edwina. Let us know where you hail from. Have you ever gone back and has your hometown changed much? One member of the Monday Club told me that it was easier to put messages on Facebook than postbag. Well, it's surprising how many visually impaired people 
who are on Facebook. But there are dangers. You can be hacked by people pretending to be you. I once had a friend request on Facebook by someone pretending to be Rosie. And just recently I had a friend request from someone pretending to be my late cousin Derek who died last year. You are much safer speaking to your fellow listeners in postbag, and it's very easy as well. I've even given you my own contact details. I'm also on Messenger and WhatsApp, but start your message off with the word postbag so I know it's you. Thank you for your messages this week, and please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. And that completes your Postbag for this week. Thanks, Dave. Now, last week, Keith started telling you about the courageous spy Edith Cavell, and now completes that story revealing the nurse's life as a double agent. We're all familiar with the courageous women of the Special Operations Executive, who were dropped into France in the Second World War, and the extraordinary legacy of women on the home front at places like Bletchley Park and Latimer House, both in Buckinghamshire where code-breaking and eavesdropping on the enemy took place. But they were not alone. There were thousands of other remarkable women across both world wars whose pivotal roles shaped the course of nations, often hidden and quietly operating behind the scenes. Indeed, the fact Edith Cavell was the female head of an espionage organisation was not unique. Women were extremely capable and effective in setting up and running intelligence networks for the British Secret Service. One such example was Louise de Bettigny, who founded the Alice Service in 1915. Her spy network for the British covered the region of Lille in France, carrying information in and out of Belgium. She was a 35-year-old French woman who operated under different guises, as a teacher, a peasant, and a lace seller. Messages were hidden inside corsets, bread baskets, rosaries, and the headdress of Catholic nuns. The group gathered intelligence on enemy positions, troop movements, and camouflaged installations, proving to be of great value to the British. General Sir Walter Kirk, British Director of Military Intelligence in France, described her as a modern Joan of Arc. Ten days after the execution of Cavell, Bettigny was arrested near Tournai in Belgium and found to be carrying forged passes. Just moments before her arrest, she had managed to alert the Allies that the Germans planned an offensive at Verdun in early 1916. She was taken to Saint-Gilles prison in Brussels, where she was held in solitary confinement with only a thin cotton blanket. There she contracted pneumonia and very nearly died. 
After her recovery, she developed a small tumour in her breast. She was operated on in the prison, but died there just six, six weeks before the end of the war, age 38. After the armistice, Bettini received a full military, military funeral and was eventually laid to rest in Lille. When Belgian Martha Cloquet, later McKenna, was first approached by a friend to spy for the British, she was horrified. But she and another Belgian agent undertook sabotage missions, and on one occasion the dangerous task of dynamiting a German ammunition depot behind enemy lines. She dropped weekly reports for the Allies through the window of a small shop in West Rosenbecker. As a result of her intelligence work, the Allies were able to bomb German military targets, ordnance, trains and ammunition depots. Croquet once spotted new German single-seater biplanes at a Belgian aerodrome and then used her contacts to smuggle information on them to the British. As her report was too important to pass on as a single message at a dead letterbox, she instead cut it up into strips, sewing them into the hem of an old skirt before passing it to a contact. After receiving this intelligence, British bombers headed for the aerodrome to attack the biplanes. Croquet also learned that the Germans were planning to lead 11 zeppelins on a raid against London. Information she passed on to the British. She survived the war and did not discover the impact of her actions until afterwards. But largely because of her information, the defences of London had been bolstered, and a Zeppelin L-31 was shot down over Potter's Bar, north of the capital. Coquette later became known as the spy who saved London. Cavell, on the other hand, for reasons of secrecy, was never acknowledged by British military intelligence as one of their agents. Still to this day, the Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, later known as MI6, has not admitted she was one of theirs. It is clear from the files, however, that she was working for the nascent MI6. After her execution, she was buried in a desolate patch of wasteland next to the Tia National, the Belgian National Shooting Centre, used by the Germans for executions in both wars. A simple white wooden cross marked her resting place. After the war, Cavell's body was repatriated to England, where she was given a state funeral in Westminster Abbey, before being reburied in Norwich Cathedral. In London, she is commemorated in a striking memorial statue near Trafalgar Square. She is inscribed with her dying words, Patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness for anyone. Gavelle's legacy went beyond the valued intelligence that her network was able to smuggle out of occupied Belgium. Her defiance and heroism in 1915 inspired women to take up resistance and intelligence activities for the remainder of the First World War. She could not have anticipated during her lifetime 
and a spirit of resistance would go on to inspire a new generation of women behind enemy lines two decades later in the Second World War. Nor could she have known that through her sacrifice she became the inspiration for the recruitment of women, intelligencers and spies ever since. A brave, courageous lady. I think we all know that Big Ben is not the clock tower of the Houses of Parliament, but is the resounding, time-telling bell itself. Elaine must come across an article in the Coventry Telegraph about this famous landmark uh, called Now and Then, but first tells us about her first visit to see it. When I was a little girl, my godmother said to me, When you are ten, I'll take you to London on holiday. It took a long time to get to ten, but the time of the holiday arrived. And we were going on a train, a steam train, from Liverpool to London Euston. The train had compartments and a corridor. We got to London Euston and we got in a taxi and went to a hotel, neither of which I had been in before. It was just magical. My godmother knew London fairly well and we saw all the sights, Buckingham Palace, Trafalgar Square, Marble Arch, Hyde Park, Oxford Street and shops, the Houses of Parliament and of course Big Ben. I had been given a Brownie 127 camera for my birthday and I was taking photographs of all these sites and I can still remember the immense disappointment that when these photographs were developed and printed that the one photo that wasn't very good was the one of Big Ben. I turned the camera the other way round to get a long picture and my finger had been a little bit across the lens and the top half of Big Ben was obscured. And while my holiday in London had been magical, oh, the disappointment on that photograph, oh, it's still remembered today. But... Big Ben is going to be around for a hundred years more, so I might even get another photograph one day, because I haven't had one yet. So, the article in the Coventry Telegraph, Now and Ben. The famous chimes of Big Ben were broadcast on the BBC for the first time a hundred years ago to welcome in the new year. The structure in which the mighty bell sits, is actually called the Elizabeth Tower, although it is also widely referred to as Big Ben, thanks to its most famous feature. Engineers were not allowed inside the building for the broadcast on December the 31st, 1923, and instead had to access the clock tower, which also houses four other bells from the roof of the Palace of Westminster. 
It meant that the microphone picked up a lot of traffic noise from the road below, as well as the sound of the chimes. But the broadcast launched a New Year's Eve tradition, which continues to this day. The bombs of Big Ben became synonymous with the BBC, and low-sensitivity microphones were eventually installed right by the bells for regular broadcasting of the chimes. The sound was also broadcast to occupied Europe during the Second World War, helping to boost morale. Big Ben was silenced with the funeral procession of Sir Winston Churchill in 1965. The tower's clock was installed in 1859, with the aim of creating the most accurate public timepiece in the world. The bell itself weighs 13 tonnes, and it took 16 horses to haul it through Whitehall to be suspended. Though nobody knows the exact origin of the name, it is thought to have been a nod to champion prizefighter Benjamin Gaunt. The clock's original Victorian mechanism was renovated as part of a huge £80 million restoration project, causing Big Ben's famous bongs to fall silent in 2017. The bells of Rochdale Town Hall replaced the usual chimes of Big Ben on BBC Radio 4 on Christmas Eve in 2018. The Elizabeth Tower which sits at the northeastern end of the Houses of Parliament, was covered in scaffolding during the restoration work. The clockwork and bell mechanism within it then underwent the biggest repair and conservation project in its history. Work was carried out from the gilt cross and orb at the tip of the building to the bottom of its 334-step staircase. The deafening chimes were stopped to protect the workers who were carrying out the renovations. Recorded bongs were used to mark the BBC network's programming, and occasionally live chimes were used for special events, such as Remembrance Sunday. The clock tower was renamed Elizabeth Tower in 2012 to mark the late Queen Elizabeth's Diamond Jubilee, and last year, as the country headed into winter, all four faces of Big Ben were put back to GMT for the first time in five years. When black paint was stripped away from the dials and the stonework surrounded them during repair work, it was discovered that it was originally painted in a colour known as Prussian Blue. Experts believe the black colour scheme was chosen in the 1930s to mask the effects of pollution. The renovation work provided a chance to return to the initial vision of Parliament's architects, Charles Barry and Augustus Welby Pugin. Other key details have also returned to Charles Barry's original design, such as a row of six shields above each dial, that displays St George's Red Cross on a white background. Heraldic shields situated above the Ayrton light, a lantern which shines when either House of Parliament is sitting, representing four parts of the United Kingdom, have also been restored. The Irish shamrock and Welsh leek are now back to their original green, while the Scottish thistle is green with a bright purple seed head, 
The English rose was painted red and white, as Mr. Barry first suggested. The conservation work also addressed crumbling stonework and leaks. This meant 3,433 cast iron roof tiles had to be removed and repaired by specialists. Ian Westworth was one of Parliament's team of clock mechanics who made sure Big Ben was ready to strike on New Year's Eve 2021. He said it's iconic. It's probably the world's most famous clock, and to have had our hands on every single nut and bolt is a huge privilege. It's going to be quite emotional when it's all over. There will be sadness that the project is finished, but happiness that we have got it back and everything's up and running again. Big Ben bonged in England's capital last year as a crowd of more than 100,000 people gathered along the Thames Embankment in central London to watch 12,000 fireworks streak across the sky. The sold-out New Year's Eve show was designed to send a message of love and unity as it highlighted the Lionesses' history-making Euro win at Wembley, marked 50 years of London's pride and sent a message of support to Ukraine. The display also paid tribute to the late Queen, featuring a voice recording from her and words from Dame Judi Dench before honouring the King, together with a message from Charles about the need to preserve our planet's future. So now Big Ben is ready for the next 100 years. Big Ben was always the authority on time on the radio, but now, with both FM and DAB radio, or DAB if you prefer, the chimes are a few seconds apart. But which is accurate? Our National Treasurer, Dame Judi Dench, has a soft spot for animals, as recounted in the article by Alison James, which Sue started last week, but she now completes. It is animals that brought Judy's chap, as she always calls him, into her life in 2010, nine years after she lost her husband, actor Michael Williams. Conservationist David Mills runs the British Wildlife Centre, not far from where Judy lives in Surrey. It is home to the finest collection of native wildlife in Britain, with more than 40 different native species, from tiny harvest mice to magnificent red deer. David was a dairy farmer before selling his herd in 1997 and opening the centre on the site of the former farm. I would drive past there with Finty and Sammy and they'd say, The man in there has otters, exclaims Dame Judy. My passion is otters. I'm mad about them. Then Finty and I were taken with some friends of hers to see the red squirrels who lived there. Having met David and struck up a friendship, he lobbied for her support. He then asked me to come and open the new red squirrel enclosure, which I did, Dame Judy continues. Again, if you don't own an animal, the next best thing is to watch them. That's especially true for children. It's clear the star who played M in seven Bond films over 17 years worries like many of us about the future of the planet. I hope we're more aware of what we're doing to the world and the earth, she says.
I have a terrible vision of the future. You look at close-up pictures of the moon and are told there's a crater that was once a river. And it chills me to the bone to think the same thing will happen to this planet. So the more we can find out about this earth we live in, the more we can discover about the things that are happening, what we are doing to it and the animals we share the planet with. At times you have a wonderful bright light like Animals Asia emerging. Organisations who are fighting to combat the maltreatment of animals. Like the bears being understood for the first time and not being in cages, not being in prison. It's the same with dogs being caged and kept in markets. I just spread the word in order to try to make people more aware. And I think people are becoming more aware. Animals aside, Dame Judy will be appearing at the Royal Albert Hall in a festive, fun-filled evening with her old friend Giles Brandreth on December the 15th. The pair will host a Christmas party with a star-studded cast of very special guests, as well as some seasonal party performances from Judy and Giles, and a brand-up full of surprises, such as reciting Shakespeare and anecdotes galore stories, sonnets, even some singing. Of course, there will be crackers and a Christmas tree too. Although acting on stage may no longer be viable for our greatest theatrical dame due to macular degeneration which has severely affected her eyesight, she insists retirement is definitely not on her agenda. Age is a number. It's something imposed on you, she smiles. It drives me absolutely spare when people say, Are you going to retire? Isn't it time you put your feet up? Or tell me my age. The only time I got really upset was when I was 40 for some reason. I was all right after that. It's that old thing. You are only as old as you feel. It's not to do with age. It's something to do with what's inside. It's the engine and Dame Judith seems to be cruising along just fine. The story of Dame Judy's love of animals. Life in the 20th century has been transformed with the advance of technology, giving us cars and planes, telephones and television, central heating and indoor toilets, but are very unlike the hard life in Coventry a hundred years or more ago. And in Alan continues his tale of life in those hurdy-gurdy days. After the parson had gone out of the pub, the bar was quiet for a few minutes, old Sam coughing and spitting into the sawdust floor to hide his agitation. Then up Tom Birch, a thin, scraggy little man with small beady eyes and ginger hair, who looked as if a square meal would do him a lot of good. Well, you've gone and done it now, but I'll go for a lark and a free pint, if you will, he said. Our dad was also full of beer and said, Well, we all promised the bloke we'd go, so I suppose we bloody well had to. Will you, Ted? said Tommy. So will I, said George Mills, a big burly bully of a chap, all punches and curses, about six foot tall, who everybody is afraid of, if he'd only to get that bloody pint. So it was unanimously decided that the very next Sunday they would all meet his parson outside Christchurch in Union Street. There was Sam Toms, 
Tommy Birch, George Mills and our dad. All four of them going to hear the parson preach for the sake of a pre-pint. None of them had ever been to a church service except when they got married or went to a funeral, gabbling words out of a prayer book like a lot of parrots. As Sunday drew near, how they wished they hadn't promised to go and back out of it, but none of them dared admit it to one another that they were scared. The church was right at the bottom of the town, about eight to ten minutes' walk from Much Park Street. It was the smallest of the three spires of Coventry, St. Michael's, Holy Trinity, and Christ Church, and stood on the site of the old Greyfriars Monastery, to which the spire belonged. The church stood back from the road, just round the corner in Union Street, with iron railings and two sets of double gates in the front, and a few flowering shrubs in front of those railings. On either side of the little garden was a paved path, leading up to the four doors in the church. The middle ones were the double doors leading into the church, and the single doors on either side gave access to the stone steps up to the galleries. The main door led to a sort of vestibule, then there were green baize doors with little brass bolts top and bottom, which opened into the church. Over each door was an ornamental design in the stonework, giving the effect of a separate porch to each door. The middle doors were always open at 6pm for people to go in early if they wished. This allowed the altar to be on view from the outside, also the brass lectern shaped like an eagle, where lessons were read. Up the aisle was a red carpet, and it all looked very inviting and cosy, but also rather frightening to four men who had never been inside a church for years. When the service was in progress, the front outside doors were left open, but the green baize ones were shut, so latecomers could stand in the vestibule, out of the weather, and listen to whatever stage the service had reached. If they could hear the minister's voice chanting the prayers, they stayed where they were, but if a hymn was being sung, they went through the green baize doors, and the verger, a man in a black gown, like a cape, with slits through which he put his arms, would come forward from somewhere, at the back with a hymn book and a prayer book, and show them a seat. This would usually be on the back row, or at the side, behind the huge pillars which supported the galleries, as all the best seats were taken up by the regular churchgoers, who paid five shillings a year pew-rent, just for the privilege of sitting in the same seat every Sunday, and having their name printed on a card, and put in a slot at the front of the seat. Sometimes during a sermon, if it was boring, and no one else was sitting in the seat, they would slide along the seat away from their nameplate, and sit behind one of the pillars, and have forty winks. The pew-tenants always went through the middle doors, while the gallery doors were for the children, and poorer people like us. The rented pews had pads on the seats, and a hassock to kneel on, when they prayed. But up in the gallery, if you wanted to pray, you either had to lean forward in your seat and kneel on the hard floor. The seats in the galleries were hard wooden ones, which went up in tiers on the steps. The Sunday school children were always sat in the galleries in the mornings and afternoons, but never in the evenings, except at anniversary services. In the middle of the two galleries, at the back of the church, was the organ and choir, which were made up of men and women of all ages. It was what they called a low church, very much like nonconformist, but it was a church of England, 
with the common prayer book, altar, lectern, and pulpit. The ministers, vicar, and curate wore surplices. There was no bowing by the clergy, not even at the altar, but there was definitely a class distinction amongst the members of the congregation. The tradesmen of the town, butchers, bakers, builders, architects, solicitors, etc., were the church wardens and sidesmen. The works manager and foreman of our factory, where our dad worked, were church wardens at this church. On the Sunday morning when they had promised to go to church, the men went to the pub as soon as it was open, and discussed, or rather cussed, going to church in the evening. By turning out time, they were full to overflowing with beer and courage, asking what time they would have to be at the church, and what they would wear. Suddenly, Tommy Birch, the shortest of the lot, even shorter than our dad, drew himself up to his full height of five foot two inches and feeling ten foot tall. What's all the fuss about? Anybody think we're going to preach the bloody sermon or summit? All I've got to do is to sit in the back row of the gallery. But how do we get up to the gallery if the parson ain't there? asked our dad. Same as you will go up the guards at the hippo, said Tommy, and don't forget to put a collar and tie on. No mufflers there. Put a penny in your pocket, and all for the collection they come round with little plush bags We wooden handles on them. We shall look fools if we ain't got no money to put in the bag. How do you know all that? said George Mills, the big man. I thought you had never been to a church before. Oh, says Tommy, quickly as lightning. My missus goes to her mother meeting sometimes. Her says as how the parson preaches rattling good sermons. No nodding off. Her sends the kids to Sunday school on Sunday afternoons and all, while her has five minutes to take snooze. And finally, we have another of Ali's short stories, written by Cynthia Townsend, which she recorded before her recent illness, from which she is slowly recovering. This story is called Life Begins at Sixty. There used to be an expression that life begins at forty, but today it's more like sixty. Well, that's what Emily's hoping. Emily was facing the big six zero, and unlike most women of her age, it wasn't really such a big deal for her. She was one of those rare women who did not feel worried about her advancing years. In fact, she was quite pleased just to get to 59. That was the age that her mother died, and for the past 30 years she'd been dreading getting to 59 and not living past it. I know it wasn't logical, but in her head, getting to 59 was the milestone, and getting past it was a major relief. Both Emily's parents died at a relatively young age, and it always weighed heavily on her mind, so much so she hadn't planned for things too far in advance, just in case she never made it. None of Emily's friends knew of this worry, because she hid it very well, and just took each day as it came. But whenever she felt ill, or had a worse than usual reaction to anything, she automatically assumed it was the end. Another thing about Emily, which set her apart from other women, is that she wasn't bothered by each wrinkle or grey hair that appeared. In fact, going grey prematurely was another thing she had her parents to thank for. From the age of 15, Emily had acquired her parents' Malin streak a flash of grey hair which stood out from her natural mousy brown mane. It was something that she got teased about at school, and she was always trying to find ways of covering it up, 
even resorting to using coffee granules to disguise the colour with little or no effect. Although the Malin streak was once viewed as a hairstyle feature that needed to be covered up or dyed, today people see it as a bold fashion choice. Many celebrities now even proudly show their streak off and embrace it. Malin streak hair is a naturally occurring condition that describes a decrease of melanin in a streak or a patch of hair. And the term is more recent, originating from the late 1970s. It's from a combination of the word Latin malignus, which means bad kind, and streak, referring to a streak of hair. And the term was popularised by Catherine Cookson in her Malin trilogy. Her novels follow the story of a 19th century English squire whose illegitimate children all inherited his white streak, each of whom met a disastrous end. No wonder Emily lived with the sword Damocles handing over her head. If it wasn't a worry about not living a long life and following her parents into an early grave, then it was the concern over the connotations of inheriting their malin streak. As the years went on, Emily's malin streak eventually covered the rest of her hair, and by the time she was in her late twenties, she was completely grey, and since then, her hair has been all sorts of colours. In her student days, Emily dyed her hair to match her mood, and in the early eighties, it was mainly black, when she went through a goth stage. Looking back through her photo album, Emily had a good laugh at the styles and the colours she'd adopted. Each one she thought looked cool at the time. She was never one to follow fashion, and when she did discover a band or liked a certain look, it was always after everybody else had discovered it first and gone on to the next thing. She always seemed to be behind everyone else. So, as she was approaching her 60th birthday, Emily decided that she didn't want to announce it to the whole world, as her friends and family would probably want to make a fuss. She even adjusted her birthday settings on the Facebook in the hope that her 60th birthday would just come and go unnoticed. Again, it wasn't because she was depressed at reaching 60, but because to her, it's just another day, another number. It seems that Emily's friends and family were desperate to throw her some kind of bash and couldn't understand why she was reluctant. She kept trying to emphasise that it wasn't a really big vanity thing. It just wasn't a big deal. Her sister-in-law had a big bash for her 60th, which was held at a local community centre, and it meant it was a big bash with a theme. Everyone who attended had to go dressed as someone from a musical. Emily and her husband Tom decided to go as a well-known couple from a much-loved musical, albeit not a very happy couple in the end, but a couple that if you said their names, you'd know who they were straight away. It was Bill and Nancy from Oliver. However, on the night it appears that other ladies of a similar age decided to adopt the persona and dress of the same person, and you couldn't move around the room without bumping into a Nancy. There were so many, in fact, that they could have formed their own choir. Emily's husband, Tom, made a very convincing Bill Sykes, though. He had the look of Captain Black about him, with black circles under his eyes and a rather large, menacing scar down his left cheek. He was dressed mainly in black with a grey, shabby waistcoat and a dishevelled neck scarf, topped off with a black hat. 
Tom was so convincing, the other Nancys in the room were lining up to have their pictures taken with him. He even turned up with his own version of Bullseye the Dog, courtesy of Emily, who found a dog on wheels on eBay. You know, the kind that toddlers used to learn to walk with. This one was white, like Bullseye, and Emily put scars and marks on the dog's fur, so he looked like Bullseye from the film, complete with one eye blacked out. The most bizarre scene of the night was when Bill Sykes and Bullseye were on the dance floor doing a jive with Mary Poppins. Everyone at the party kept saying to Emily, It's your sixtieth next. What theme will you be having at your party? And none of them could believe that she wasn't planning on doing anything at all, let alone have a themed party. Emily was happy in her own skin. Yes, she could do losing a bit of weight and looking after herself better. But overall, she was happy with a lot. And she didn't need any fuss or a big party to tell the world she was 60. Plus the fact she honestly didn't need anything as she got to the stage in her life where she had everything she wanted. In fact, she was very blessed with that situation. She worked hard all her life, built up a little nest egg and was married to a kind man who shared a sense of humour. So very different from her parents' marriage, which, to be frank, was a bit of a disaster. So if you're the kind of person who gets worked up about reaching a milestone age, then don't worry. It's just a number. And as long as you're happy, make others feel appreciated and are kind and non-judgmental, you can live the kind of life you want to on your terms. As for Emily's 60th, like she wanted, it came and went with no big fuss. Though she did allow Tom to treat her to a curry on the night which they ate from a tray in front of the TV, watching Coronation Street. To Emily, life didn't get any better than that. Making the most of life concludes this edition of Outlook. So from the team and me, Nigel Hewing, it's goodbye till next week.